0: not even going to try to follow that act. <laughs> yeah, you <and> me, <laughs> All right, Turn, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 7, we'll continue where we've left off last week. As uh, most of you know, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the life of the Lord Jesus. Today, we'll look at the life of another person. Through what the Lord Jesus has to say about him, I had the uh, opportunity to give a number of eulogies during my life. For those of you who don't know what a eulogy is, that's um, when you speak at a person's funeral and try to uh, maybe capture some value in their life. In a sense, it's a, a praising of the person uh, who died. And it's sometimes not easy, you, not easy to, to know what to say about a person Uh, maybe there wasn't so much special that they did, or maybe you want to make sure you you say, you capture what's really valuable about that person's life. And uh, today we'll have an opportunity of hearing how Jesus speaks of someone who hasn't died yet, but perhaps is getting close to the time of death, and Jesus feels that there's a need of speaking of the worth of his life and the ministry that he had in his life. So with that, we'll... Start reading in Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and... Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourn for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine beaver, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. And the Lord bless the reading. Of His Word. We start here with a question. John the Baptist is asking a question. He's asking it through two of his disciples. And the question is, are you the coming one or do we look to another? What does John the Baptist mean? Literally what he's asking Jesus is, are you really the Messiah we've been expecting? Or are we waiting for somebody else? A surprising question from the very man who came to announce the Lord Jesus to be the Messiah to the nation of Israel. How can John the Baptist be asking a question like that? I think it's uh, hard for us to appreciate the difficult situation John the Baptist was in. He was in a trial. He was, he was in a trial in a depth of which I probably never experienced myself. I know many people go through trials, and maybe some have suffered as he has, but... Uh, if we enter into his state, it's easier to understand why he's asking a question like that. John the Baptist uh, was sent by God to preach the gospel or to uh, preach the repentant, uh, preach um, to people the fact that they were sinners and that they needed to repent of their sins, that they needed to be baptized, and that they needed to expect the one that was coming, the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus came, John the Baptist pointed them to, Lord, to Jesus for them to follow Jesus or receive him as the Messiah. And John the Baptist uh, was very faithful in preaching his message. And one day Herod the Tetrach, which would be like a king of the land, came. And Tetrach uh, and uh, Herod had some issues in his own life. And John the Baptist, faithful to his mission, spoke to Herod about the sin in his life. And Herod got so upset that he stuck John in prison. And John's been in prison for some time, whether it's been days, or weeks, or months, or a year, we're not sure. But John the Baptist, while being in jail for doing the very ministry that God called him to do, was hearing about Jesus going around and doing these incredible miracles. And last week we saw the Lord Jesus raising somebody from the dead. And here John the Baptist is sitting in his prison, and Jesus is going around doing miracles and raising people from the dead. And John the Baptist is wondering, what's going on? What about me? Why is he not getting me out of jail, out of prison? And it could be that John the Baptist had some of the ideas of people of his days of what the Messiah should do, the fact the Messiah should come, walk into Jerusalem, claim his throne, and perhaps the first order of business would be to free John out of the prison cell. John was him. And and he wasn't doing that. And so... When John was asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? It's not that God hasn't already revealed to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah, but he struggled with what what was going on. He didn't understand, how is it possible that I'm here in jail if he's really the Messiah? And so he asked the question, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? How does Jesus respond to that question? Well, first of all, Jesus confirms his Messiahship. And he does it in this way. In verse 22, then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. First of all, there was a demonstration of power. Jesus was doing miracles that were impossible unless he was the Messiah. And he simply points John to those miracles, a confirmation of his power. And that's one of the things that I know God does in, uh, in my trials, last year was uh, a year of trials for me, again, I, I'm not special, I'm sure everybody here experienced trials and some much deeper trials than I have, but uh, the year started at the end of January with uh, half my face not responding to my commands anymore, For those of you who remember, and uh, that was uh, first diagnosed as a cerebral? Bell's palsy. palsy. I have my medical expert here at my right to help me. And uh, that wasn't bad enough. I found out uh, in the next few weeks that it was due to a growth I had inside of my ear that was pressing on a nerve in my face, which meant I needed to have a a serious surgery to remove that growth. And I had concerns I would lose some of the little bit of hearing I still had uh, left at the time. And uh, Around the same time, I had a company uh, being interested for me to work for them. You know, these days it's not easy to find a job, and that was a good opportunity for me. And so I was, even as I was going through this medical process uh, uh, that I was going through from appointment to appointment, trying to get reservations for the next one, I was going into these interviews for this company. And uh, these things take time, Uh, needing to get my surgery appointment was a difficult process. It was calling the nurse and getting calls back from her and having to wait for her to correlate things with other patients and the doctor. And I probably waited about two weeks to get my appointment for my surgery to remove the growth in my ear. Going through an interview takes a long time as well. It takes a long time before they make their decisions. And in the Lord's uh, timing, my uh, phone call telling me when my surgery would be, and my phone call from this company telling me that they would be happy to offer me a job came within half an hour of each other. And I was like, well, I don't understand why all this is happening, but the Lord is in control. And that's what the Lord was reminding here to John the Baptist. He was in control. Yes, you are in prison. He wasn't sending an explanation to John the Baptist of why John the Baptist was in prison. But he was reminding John the Baptist who he was. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I have all power. Yes, I could free you from prison. I can do all those things. But his response to him was, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So he can do anything he wants to, and yet John the Baptist will have to stay in prison. In fact, he will stay in prison until he's executed. He wasn't going to deliver, but he wanted... John the Baptist, to trust in him. That's what he means when he says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Don't be offended because I'm not delivering you from prison. I know what I'm doing. You need to trust me in this situation that you are in right now. Uh, and <clears throat> and uh, the various trials I've had over the years, one of the common uh, thread that goes through all of them is God's blessing. Uh, the greatest trial I had, I mentioned it many times, was when Sharon and I got a call being told that our eldest daughter was going to have Downs and uh, hydrocephalus and medical issues that we were very concerned with, and uh, yet God used that—used it to really refresh us in our life. I remember opening my Bible and reading it in the midst of that trial and saying, God is really speaking to me in his word right now. I don't remember the last time God spoke to me. God was this close to me. And in the same way, God uses trials in our lives to bless us. That's the purpose of them. In fact, James is so bold to say something that I I wouldn't say to anybody going through a trial, but this is what the Bible says. James says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. What he tells us is God is using trials in our lives to build patience in us. And beyond the patience, there's other things God is doing in our life. And in fact, this is so wonderful that when we fall into a trial, we should count it all joy. Incredible. But that's what this verse is saying. Uh, There's uh, perhaps the favorite verse that uh, people like to quote in the Bible... Is this for? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, this is the part not everybody quote. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. So this says, all things God is working all things together for good to them that love Him. Well, all things include trials which he brings into our lives for our good. What good? Well, the good here is very clear. To be conformed to the image of his son. God wants to change me and make me more like Jesus. And that's pretty good, I think. In fact, that's the very purpose. When it says God is working all things together, that's what he means. He's working all things together for my good to make me more like his son. And um, I remember when I was going through that trial, Uh, particularly the one with uh, being told that my daughter was going to have all these issues, I was thinking, doesn't God know that if my daughter has all these issues, I will have less time to serve him? I'm not going to be able to be a missionary. All these opportunities to serve God are being taken away from me by this trial. Doesn't God know? And John the Baptist could have said, Doesn't God know I could serve him so much better out of prison? I'm so limited here with my sphere of influence. If I can go out again and be in the Jordan and baptizing people, I could do so much greater things for God. But God said, no, I'm more interested in the work I'm doing in your life and conforming you to my son. That's more important. We like using people. God doesn't use people. He's interested in the people themselves and making them more like his son. That's his goal in us. Now, we're talking here about, about the life that the Lord values, and we'll go into it next as Jesus is beginning to talk about John, John the Baptist, and this is really the prerequisite. The first thing in order to have a life that Jesus is happy to talk about, and Jesus is finding something to praise in, is this work of God in a person. It doesn't come in a vacuum. We are not born as praiseworthy creatures. And by our own power, we do not become praiseworthy creatures. It's by the power of God at work in us that we can become praiseworthy creatures. And that's that's what Jesus is praising John here for. It's really things that God has produced out of John's life. So John is not the one who gets the highest credit. It's God. God that gets the highest credit. And yet, he's the one who looks and is interested in praising people we're told in revelation that god has crowns he has these crowns he wants to give us and uh, we think about crown as the crown of a king that makes us reign over other people that's not the crown he's talking about he's talking about the victor crown in the olympics when someone would win in those days they would put like a wreath of of some sort of a plant around his head to show that that is the champion and god wants to reward us he wants to recognize the life we live here which is amazing uh, we, were, uh, we started uh, this, this uh, morning's devotion with God alone is worthy. And it is true that God al- alone is worthy, and yet he still wants to recognize us and the things he's doing through our lives and give us the benefit or the credit or the reward that's associated with it. Even though he's the one from which all the blessings flow, he wants to include us in his blessings. Okay, so let's look at what Jesus said about John the Baptist. And I found here five points, and maybe there's more, but I'll, I'll talk at least about five points if you're taking notes of, of things that were praiseworthy, that Jesus found praiseworthy about John the Baptist. So the first one is in verse 24. They're very condensed here in, the, in a couple of verses. Jesus says, Why did you go into the wilderness to see, And that's the first word I want to think about is the wilderness. Why did they go to the wilderness? Well, because that's where John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Why was John the Baptist in the wilderness? Well, there's one verse that comes to mind. It's in 1 John 2. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. I'll read it. But First John chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide Forever. What does it mean to not love the world? After all, don't we say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? He did, but God loved the people that were in the world. We live in a world that will offer you things to satisfy you, things that the world says are worth living for. This, If you could only have this career, if you could only make a fortune, if you can only found that special person in your life, that special relationship, or if you can only become... Miss or Mr. Popular. If you can attain these things, that's worth living for. And yet, God tells us that we should not love the world or the things that are in the world. The things that the world is offering you that's saying, if you just have this, you'll be satisfied. God is saying, do not love, turn away from these things. And that is what John the Baptist was doing going to the wilderness. He was saying, no, I don't want all these things. There's just one thing that I want. And that is God. It's interesting in these verses that two are placed in contradiction to each other. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm often convicted by the lack of love for God in my own life. And this could be part of the reason why. To the extent that I'm wrapping myself around the world and what this world has to offer me, be it the house or a car or uh, an iPhone or whatever it is that this world is offering me, to that same extent, I'm not wrapping my heart around the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist was doing, and that's why God could say of him that he was a lamp that was burning and shining. And you rejoice for a while to be in his presence because John the Baptist burned for the Lord. He loved the Lord so much. He was so consumed with him because he was willing to leave it all behind. So the first praiseworthy thing that Jesus finds about... The, about uh, John is the fact he was willing to turn away from the world and the things of the world, to just cleave to the Lord and, and seek what the Lord had for him. And it says here, this world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. John sought the thing that has eternal value to it. I was uh, mentioned I had opportunity to share some of my eulogies in my life. The latest one was for my own grandfather, who was not a believer. And uh, I was trying at the same time to find something praiseworthy to say about his life and uh, hoping for an opportunity to say something about the Lord and the fact that the people in the funeral, who I believe none were believers, would have an opportunity to think a little bit about the Lord. But I, I was seeking to... Think what is it that my grandfather did that was praiseworthy as far as the world would recognize? And uh, probably the greatest thing he did that would, the world would recognize, or at least at the time recognized, he learned uh, radar technology during World War II, which World War II, that was you know the newest and greatest technology that really was the key to help uh, the Allies, or at least England, to defeat the Germans, because the Germans had superior uh, air force that they could send over and the British didn't have enough planes to really match what the Germans would send, but the British discovered the radar, and so they were able to see the Germans and know where the Germans were coming and decide what would be the most effective way to block them and knock their bombers out of the sky. That helped the Allies win the war in World War II. Well, my grandfather learned that technolo- technology in the Navy in World War II, and then he went to Israel... And he gave Israel that technology to help them in the war of independence as they were fighting the Arab nations around them. This was one of the uh, helpful technologies that allowed Israel to, to win that war. And at the time, my grandfather was very much appreciated for it because he was giving this uh, great contribution to the war effort by just sharing his knowledge and building radar systems in Israel in 1948 or so. Uh, so I shared that and... Uh, Other people shared nice things, and then at the end of the uh, funeral, I was talking to my grandmother a little bit, and you could sense a little bit of sadness in her. Uh, There was maybe 40 or 50 people at the funeral, and she knew that there were a lot more people who appreciated my grandfather over the years. There were probably hundreds or thousands that would have sang his praise 50 years earlier, but that all has gone away all the praise of men, all the things we can do in this world do not last. They are not of lasting value. There wasn't a whole lot left to show for all the things my grandfather did, even at the end of his life. How much less will there be in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now? Nobody would remember what my grandfather has done. And that's, here it says, this world is passing away. There's nothing in this world, there's nothing this world is offering you that has any lasting value. But, he who does the will of God abides forever. John the Baptist was well, here he being praised by the eternal God. What he was doing was being appreciated forever. And that's, that's the praise that we should be thinking. It's interesting. Jesus says this at some point uh, when he was talking to, to the crowd. He said, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Jesus couldn't understand it. Why are you guys so interested in getting honor from one another? Why aren't you seeking the honor of the only God? That's the honor you should be seeking after. That's what Jesus cared about. That's what John cares about. And that's what we, brother and sister, should be seeking after. Not the praise of man, but the praise of God. That's the first first thing that uh, John is praised for, is being willing to leave it all behind. And instead, going after the Lord, seeking, uh, seeking what the Lord had for him. The second thing we, we see here is, Jesus said, "Why did you go out into the wilderness to see a, re- a wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? A reed. So a reed, if you're not familiar with it, is a thin plant, and uh, it will get shaken by the wind. If the wind blows, that reed will go this way and that. Now, what Jesus is saying here what jesus intends is that people understand that he is not he is not a reed shaken by the wind what does it mean that he's not it means he's standing firm with where he's at he's not moving there uh, john had a message to preach by god and that message wasn't always going to be popular people didn't always like what john the baptist had to say he was telling people that they were sinners And if you know anything about trying to share the gospel with people, you know they don't like being told that they're sinners. And maybe it's not so hard to tell a farmer that comes by or a tax collector that they're sinners or even maybe a Pharisee that he is a sinner. But here's the king of the land standing in front of you. And if you're going to call him a sinner and he doesn't like it, there's going to be consequences. John the Baptist was faithful. He still pointed out to the man sick. The fact he needed to repent and the fact that if he didn't repent, he would go to hell for his sins. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. Whatever the consequences, he stood firm, And that's the second thing that God wants in your life and my life. Jesus says this. He speaks to, uh, to his own disciples in his last night and he tells them, if the world hates you, You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then a few verses later he says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you thinks that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Why is Jesus so carefully telling them about the persecution that will come? Well, number one, they're inevitable. Number two, he knows that they will challenge the believers. The believer might be led to stumble. Whoa, they're going to do all that to me? I I have a change of heart. You know, I don't want to serve the Lord. I don't want to... Uh, Preach the message of the gospel. I don't want to call sinners sinners if that's what they're going to do to me. And yet, if you're not willing to do it, you're useless to God as far as the gospel message is concerned. And so that's why this is a quality God is looking for a reed not shaken by the wind, somebody who is willing to stand for the Lord and be dependable and not be shifted by the opinions of the world, by the opinions of others. That's a quality that the Lord appreciated. Okay, that was the second quality. The third quality we have in the next verse for us. Verse 25, But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. Usually when I see this question, a man clothed in soft garments, again, the obvious answer is no. John wasn't covered with a soft garment; he was covered with camel skin. Camel skin is not soft, but I was thinking that's not comfortable, you know. So the Lord, you know, is is you know talking here about John's willingness to wear an uncomfortable piece of garment, and I, I appreciate that, and that's true. He was willing to, and I'm sure the Lord appreciated him for it. But that's probably not what the Lord means here. Uh, the word he's using for the soft garment. Uh, is the idea of a garment that cleaves to your body shape. Okay, the, the cloth skin that um, John was wearing did not conform to his body shape. Okay, it was very stiff. I, I was recently riding in the car and listening to the news and uh, somebody was telling about this big job conference that was going on and, of course, that's big news. We all want jobs. And uh, the, the newscaster asked the person that he was interviewing, what should people do? What would you suggest to people? And uh, she said this, dress for success. You're coming to be interviewed, dress su- for success. So dress to impress. Make sure that you're wearing clothes that will impress the person that is interviewing you, if you want to get a job. that is. Well, John the Baptist did not d- was not dressed for success. Okay, he didn't wear a piece of clothing that made him attractive. People didn't say, boy, you know that's a fine-looking fellow. I'd like to listen to what he has to say. Right? He, was, he was definitely not in vogue wearing his camel skin. And that's what the Lord is praising him for. Now it's interesting, it's side-by-side with telling people, well, if you want to find people that are dressed like that, go to king's courts. Why, why will king courts have people dressed like that? Well, because it's people that are seeking the favor of the king. People who are really seeking something for themselves. They'll go to King courts and they'll wear the clothes that make them look nice because that's the way of getting something for themselves. So really what Jesus is here praising John for is that John is not seeking anything for himself. Uh, He's described elsewhere as a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. He was just a voice. There was nothing else to him. He wasn't seeking himself. There was nothing he was seeking for himself out of the deal. Uh, There's a... One of my favorite passages around, about John is in the book of John the Apostle in uh, chapter 2. If you want to turn there. In verse 25. Actually, I'll go back to verse 24 to give us the time. Verse 24, For John had not yet been thrown into prison, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourself bear witness. I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. <clears throat> the the Pharisees, if uh, I mean, it's, there's this dispute in the beginning about purification, and then they come to John. And they ask him about what he thinks about Jesus is doing. And the reason they're doing it is they're trying to stir up some jealousy in John. Saying, look, the guy that you talked about, look, he's, he's over there. And everybody's going to him. And this is a point they're somehow trying to score against John. They're hoping to somehow <laughs> stir up John's jealousy. And all that John can say is great. <laughs> this is wonderful. You know, he must increase, but I must decrease. He had, he had nothing he was seeking for himself in this. All he was seeking for was the praise of the one he was sent before to prepare the way out. So this is the, the, third, the third quality that Jesus found praiseworthy, praiseworthy about John uh, the Baptist. The fact he wasn't seeking anything for himself. He was just trying to serve the one he was sent to serve. He was really seeking to forward Jesus's ministry, not his own ministry. And Jesus says the same thing to us. He says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Trying to save my life means trying to get things for myself, trying to protect what's mine. And a person who does that, who seeks his own, Jesus says he will lose his life. Not, no value of his life will be preserved. But he who is willing to lose his life and give it all for my sake will find it. That's a person who will find, uh, we could say, number one, the true meaning of life, the true satisfaction of life, but also the eternal value of it. The person who seeks to hoard it all will lose it all. He'll keep nothing. The person who is freely giving it all for the service of Christ is gaining rewards for eternity as a result. So, praiseworthy quality, not seeking your own, but seeking that which is Jesus Christ. The fourth point uh, is in going back to Luke chapter 7. Is in verse 26, But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So here John the Baptist is praised about what he's doing as being a prophet. What is a prophet? Whenever I ask the question, my mind goes to the imagery in the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for prophet is Nevi. And Nevi simply means uh, a a source of water that comes out of the ground. If you ever went hiking and there's no river or streaming water on the surface, but you come in a valley and there's a place, the water just gushes out of. That's, That's the Hebrew word for a prophet. And the picture I get, you're in this world where there is no knowledge of God, and there's no clear idea of where the knowledge of God will come from, and there all of a sudden it's spouting out, and that's a prophet, a person from whom God, God is using to speak, and reveal himself to those around, and I think about uh, the beautiful places I've seen, that are very dry all around, but there is a place that's very lush, and you want to know why it's very lush, and you come, and you find that there's one of these bubbling places of water coming out of the ground, And that's the idea of the prophet. God takes the revelation of God that comes out of that prophet and uses it to bless everybody that's around with the word of God. So John was a prophet. And that's a praiseworthy quality. God is is excited about the revelation of God that's coming out of a person. But he's more than a prophet, the passage says. How was John more of a prophet? Well, he was the one who literally prepared the nation of Israel for Christ. That's what it says there. Behold... I send my messenger before your face. John was the one who didn't just tell people about God. There were many other prophets. He was the only prophet who was able to tell people about God and then say, and here he is. Here he's coming. So that they could actually become connected to the very one he was preaching about. So he was greater. He was more than a prophet. He could do that. Now comes the perhaps most difficult verse in this passage. What Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? Well, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist means, well, there hasn't been anybody that could share more about God than John the Baptist. You can go back and find Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and all the great prophets. And they could not tell you more about God than John the Baptist could. He could tell you more about God than they could. <clears throat> but he who is least in the kingdom of God can tell you more about God than John the Baptist can. Who is that? I would say to you, it's every believer in this room actually knows more about God than John the Baptist does because we have this. Okay, this is the summary of what all the prophets have spoken. John the Baptist had about the first half of this. We have the other half. John the Baptist probably knew a lot about everything the Old Testament taught, which included the law of God and the sin of man. And he had some inklings about the good news, the fact that God was sending his son to save the world. A lot of the prophets knew that our Messiah was coming. John knew a lot more about him than others. He could even point to him and say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I don't think any of the other prophets could have said that. Yet even John didn't fully understand, which we see in this passage, he was struggling. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? He didn't understand. I think nobody understood when Jesus, except for one woman who who uh, uh, poured perfume on him before he died, nobody understood Jesus was really going to die. Even The disciples that were John's disciples and then became Jesus' disciples and to whom he told again and again that he would be crucified did not understand it. They couldn't fathom that the Messiah, the Son of God, would be put to death. It was inconceivable. And yet we can turn back and understand he had to die to pay for my sin and to pay for your sin. And we can say, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. And we understand what it means that deep love God has for us. And John the Baptist probably couldn't quite go down. He didn't quite know as much as you and I can know. And so even as great of a prophet as John the Baptist was, as much as he was able to bless people, God has given you and me a greater privilege, a greater opportunity to bless people than even John the Baptist had. I think about the life John the Baptist lived and how he put away the world and you know, clove to the Lord and was willing to stand firm and did not seek anything for himself because of the greatness of the ministry he received. And I think of the fact that I have been given a greater privilege than John the Baptist. And what am I doing with him? One of the thoughts that came to me as I was uh, thinking about the song that Nessia sang It says, more precious than gold, much better than silver, is the price of a soul God wants to deliver. There are people around you crying out for a savior, and their lives are a treasure of worth beyond measure, more precious than gold. People around me are grasping pleasures that leave them so empty. Each day I see them hurried and hopeless, rushing down the path to eternity, Christians are losing God's riches, fooled by the world's empty pleasures, seeking the worthless, leaving the precious, deaf to the words of a Savior. I speak it as a rebuke to myself. But uh, we have a great privilege. We have a great privilege to share with people the knowledge of God and to be a source of blessing in life to others. <clears throat> so that was the fourth point let me go quickly to the fifth point. And uh, this one is really... A, a, th- there, was, there was another intent in this passage. Besides of singing the praises of John the Baptist, Jesus was talking here to people who heard John the Baptist speak and rejected his message, rejected the message that God had for them. <clears throat> and Jesus is speaking to them really in rebuke in verses 29 through 35. I'll I'll go ahead and start in verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. What is the Lord talking about? He's comparing the generation to people who are playing. And really what he's talking about is their religion. The religion was like a game. They, they believed that by doing certain good things, like going to the synagogue on the Sabbath, not doing work on the Sabbath, tithing to the Lord, they, Jesus said they would literally take every tenth leaf off the herb and use it as a tithe for God. And because they were the children of Abraham and they had many other reasons, they felt they were justified before God. God uh, would take them to heaven because of all the things they were doing. Like people today who might go to church and feel, well, I go to church and I, I, I give my, my, my tithe to church and I don't do this and I do that and I think that's good enough. I, I think that should get me to heaven. And here comes John the Baptist and he's saying, no way, that's not going to get you to heaven. You guys are sinners. Unless you change, unless something happens, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. And they didn't like that message. And that's why they said, well, you know, he's not eating or drinking. This, this man is clearly demon-possessed. We don't have to listen to what he says. They, they didn't like the message he preached. And as a result, ah, that's not what we want to hear. You're not, you're not playing our game. You're not, you're not following the doctrines we believe in. And so we're not going to listen to what you have to say. And then Jesus comes, and uh, he's, he's eating and he's drinking and fellowshipping with tax collectors and people who are known as public sinners. And the Pharisees are looking at that and like, no way. You know, if he's really the Messiah, he should stick with good people like us. <laughs> and as I saw, they rejected Jesus and what Jesus had to say. So Jesus is comparing them to children playing games. Look, you know, you, we're not playing the game the way you want us to, and because of it, you're rejecting us. You're rejecting John the Baptist because he's telling you things you don't want to hear. You're rejecting me because of how I'm acting, and yet we're bringing you the message of God that you're rejecting. And this is uh, maybe a note to anybody here who's heard the message and yet has found a reason to say, well, I don't want to believe that. That doesn't really fit the idea I have, the picture I have of the way things should be. Be careful that you don't do what these men have done it says rejecting the counsel of God for them. God's counsel for them is believe that your sinners repent of your sins, be baptized, and then accept the one that is coming. And they rejected that. Don't reject it. But there's a praiseworthy thing here for John the Baptist because John the Baptist came and he was preaching his message about sin. And, at the, and crowds were coming to hear him. This was wonderful. Today we'd say a revival is happening. People from all Judea and Jerusalem and they're all coming to hear John the Baptist and he's speaking, he's preaching to them the word of God. And John was talking to them about their sin and they were turning away. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear what he's saying. And he could have said, boy, I got the wrong message. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll try preaching something else. Well, you guys are not really that bad. You know, it's okay. You guys are okay. We just need to give you something extra here. The Messiah is coming. He'll help you out a little bit. But John the Baptist did not He's stuck. To his message. And that's what Jesus appreciates here. It says wisdom is justified by her children. John the Baptist stuck with the message that God has given him. And the result was fruit. People were saved. Yes, there are messages that will fill this church up. And there's uh, messages that will cause growth as far as this world will see. But they're not going to be the messages that save sinners and take them to heaven. And John the Baptist stuck with his message and that was something that was praiseworthy in the sight of God <clears throat> yesterday I was talking to an electrician John Don shared last week about how whenever you preach something goes on and uh, of course I wasn't an exception I had a light a number of lights that went off in my house so I had to call an electrician he came in yesterday and uh, he recently started going to church. He was actually raised in a believer's home. I think he's saved now. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, eventually something happened in his life and he became interested in the things of God and he started going to church again. Uh, this time for himself, not because his parents were making him do. Now he was really interested in what God has to say and was seeking the Lord. And uh, one of the things he, he said is, it's never too late. It's never too late. I think of, of me and uh, the life that I lived, um, thinking about eulogies, what it is that people will say of me when I die. Will they come and say what a great uh, characterization engineer I was, whatever that means. He made LEDs bright a little, shine a little brighter. <laughs> No, not going to be remembered once somebody else figures out a way of making them shine even brighter. Not going to last. Or will there be some eternal fruit that came as a result of my life for which uh, praise can be given eternally. Of course, we should not be seeking praise for ourselves. What we seek are the crowns that we can cast at his feet because he's the one that is worthy and made, made it all possible, made us able to Partake in this labor of bringing people to Him. That's what I want. And it's never too late. It's never too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you find reasons to praise us. We realize the only reason there's anything in our lives to praise is because of the work you do in it. Lord, if there's anybody here that needs an encouragement going through a trial as John the Baptist has, Lord, we Pray that you might encourage them to trust in you a little longer and to see the fruit that come out of that uh, work in their lives. And for the rest of us, Father, we seek to be more living the life that John the Baptist lived, turning away from the things of the world, being steadfast for you and the things that you give us to do, and uh, being like this fountain through which the revelation of God can come out and bring life to those around us. We ask all these things for the sake of him who made it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen.